Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my second podcast in my series on Biblical Geography. We discussed in our first podcast the importance of location in the biblical narrative. Location affects who your neighbors are, what your weather will be like, what foods will be readily available, what the local amenities will be, what language or dialect you will hear, what occupation you can have, and it can even affect your health and your safety. Just ask Abraham's nephew Lot. The predominant focus of the Old Testament was on the geographic region called Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. And then we go on to Canaan, which at the time encompassed Israel, the West Bank, Gaza, Jordan, southern portions of Syria, and Lebanon. And then the Old Testament also took us to Egypt a few times. The location of ancient Israel was not an accident. The neighbors, the weather, the food, the language, the temptations, the threats to ancient Israel were all part of the biblical story. Where they were located greatly affected Israel, as it does today. God knew this, and so that's why he spent so much time with the descendants of Abraham in the desert after they escaped the Egyptian captivity. God wanted to prepare them for the land they were about to enter. God knew that they would be faced with many temptations from the pagan inhabitants of the land they were to occupy. God knew that they were going to be surrounded by nations that would despise them because they were different and set apart by God. God knew his people would be entering hostile territory, but he comforted them with these words in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 14. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, and the crops of your land, and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herd, the lambs of your flock. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in, and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant you that your enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, but flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he is giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on an oath. If you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him, then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your field, 
in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the works of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. Do not turn aside from any of these commands I give you today, to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. Unquote. As you can see, the Bible tells us that Israel's geography was a gift from God. It was to be a blessing to them. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, God describes the promised land as a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, the phrase milk and honey, what did that mean to them back then? Well, it's a poetic description, not to be taken literally, but it meant that Israel's land would have fertile soil. The reference milk suggested to them that their livestock would find good pasture. And then honey suggested vast farmland available. In other words, bees would have plenty of plants to draw nectar from. Location, location, location. Well, God told his people about the richness of this land he was sending them to. He also warned them that in this location, there would be enemies that they must overcome. The nations displaced by Israel from this land flowing with milk and honey were significant in number, and they also valued the land enough to fight for it and die for it. Well, sadly, the Old Testament is filled with stories of man's rebellion and his desire to make his own decisions and to lean on his own understanding instead of listening to God. Consequently, the blessings of the promised land became snares to God's chosen people. The land that Jesus grew up in, the land of the New Testament that we're going to talk about today, it was a small, divided nation ruled by the Romans. It was not the land that God had intended for his people. It was no longer a land flowing with milk and honey. They were no longer a sovereign nation, and their country was geographically much smaller and occupied by many pagan people. This was not God's plan for his people, but it was a result of their rebellion against God and his commands. God's plan for his people was that all of Israel was to be united. If you think back to the Old Testament, the land was divided into 12 segments and was given to the 12 tribes of Israel, which were the 12 sons of Jacob. This is described in the book of Joshua. But after the death of King Solomon, sometime around 930 BC, the kingdom split in two, into a northern kingdom, which actually retained the name Israel, and a southern kingdom that became called Judah, named after the tribe of Judah that dominated that kingdom. During the time of Jesus, this area of Judah is going to be called Judea. In the Old Testament, we learned that both the northern and later the southern regions were captured and sent into exile. So no longer would Israel ever be under self-rule, except for a really short period of time when they were ruled by the Maccabees and then later the Hasmonean families. So during the time of Jesus, 
As I said, Israel's under Roman rule. And in fact, it's no longer called Israel. By this time, it's called Palestine. And there's really some debate about where the word Palestine actually originated. The name is believed to be derived from a Hebrew word meaning Peleshet, which translated kind of means migratory. And it was used to describe the land of the ancient Philistines. It first appeared in writing by the Greek historian around 5 BC. But by the time of Jesus, that land is referred to as Palestine. The Roman occupation of Israel was really the last in a long line of invasions that started in the Old Testament with the invasion of the Assyrians in the northern kingdom and then the Babylonians in the southern kingdom, then the Persians and then the Greeks led by Alexander the Great. You know, God all along had intended to be Israel's king, but instead, by the time of Jesus's birth, Israel was subject to a system of government consisting of Roman overseers and local leaders who held and exercised power in the name of Rome. Now, the family of Herod the Great grew to prominence and the Romans ended up making Herod king over Israel. Herod the Great was king when Jesus was born and then it was his son, Herod Antipas, who ruled during Jesus's adult life. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem at the time had a population of about 1,400 people, making it the 13th largest village in Palestine. The name Bethlehem literally means house of bread. Bethlehem is located about six miles southwest of Jerusalem. It's also known as the city of David, but so is Jerusalem, which is sort of interesting. Bethlehem in the Old Testament is where David was anointed by the prophet Samuel to become king over Israel. While Jesus was born in Bethlehem, we know from the Bible that he grew up in a town called Nazareth. Nazareth was a small town within the province of Galilee. Nazareth was close to some large metropolitan areas called Tiberias and Sepphoris. If you refer to my map on studentofthebible.com, you'll see that Nazareth is in the north. It's about 90 miles or a four days journey by foot from Nazareth to Jerusalem. And this is significant when you consider the fact that all Jews were supposed to make a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem three times a year. So Jesus and his family definitely would have done that. Jerusalem was the capital and really the center of the Jewish world, if you will. The temple was in Jerusalem. And as I said, Jews were supposed to make a pilgrimage to the Jewish temple for the three major Jewish feasts every year, Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Jerusalem is part of the southern area called Judea, formerly Judah. During the time of Jesus, Palestine was divided into three regions or provinces. There was Galilee in the north, Samaria in the center, and Judea to the south. Samaria is the name for 
the mountainous central region of Israel. And the name Samaria comes from the ancient city of Samaria, which, again, when Israel became divided, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Jerusalem remained the capital in the south, Samaria the capital in the north. Now, there's many stories in the New Testament about this region called Samaria. This is where we have the woman at the well who met Jesus, and Jesus told her everything about her life. We have the parable told by Jesus about the good Samaritan, and Jesus tells his disciples to preach the good news to all the people of Samaria. The people of Samaria got a bad rap. They were Gentiles who intermarried with Jews long ago after the Assyrian invasion, and consequently, they were always looked down on as being unclean and untrustworthy. Jesus, of course, disproved this erroneous belief many times. But isn't it interesting that we still today look upon people from certain regions and we make quick assumptions about them based on the way they talk or what we think we know about them? Did you know that Jesus grew up in an unpopular region? Jesus grew up in Nazareth in the province called Galilee. During the time of Jesus, Galilee was actually the largest of the three provinces that made up Palestine. Now, Judea in the south was, as we said, the center of the Jewish religion and culture, Jerusalem at its center. And as we've learned, Jerusalem is where the temple was and also, therefore, where the high priests were and the Sanhedrin. During the time of Jesus, Jews from the south, from Judea, according to some biblical scholars, harbored contempt for the inhabitants of the rural areas of Galilee, where Jesus grew up. According to the website Bible Hub, they considered the people from Galilee to be, quote, backward, uncouth, and even barbaric. Because of their poor pronunciation, the Galileans were considered ignorant. In fact, if you look in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 26, verse 73, we're told that Peter's accent gives him away as being one of Jesus's followers. Now, it's true that people from Galilee spoke Aramaic, but apparently they had a very distinct dialect, which was different from that which was spoken in Jerusalem. According to a Jewish website called Travelija, Judean Pharisees in particular were less than impressed with Galilean observance of the finer points of Jewish religious observance. Now, this cracks me up because this is where Jesus is from, but they are less than impressed with their observance of Jewish religious practices. Now, it says, while praised for their passionate identification with Judaism and the Jewish people, their ignorance in law and disinterest in study was an almost never-ending source of fuel for Judean snobbery, unquote. Well, this is why Jesus was not recognized by some as being the Messiah. And in the Gospel of John, 
Chapter 7, verse 52, a group of Pharisees objected that no prophet can come from Galilee. And then we have Nathaniel before he becomes a follower of Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 46 says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Isn't this interesting? Galilee as a region is extremely important in the New Testament and Leave it to Jesus to dispel myths about judging people who come from a particular location. Most of Jesus' public ministry occurs in this northern province. In fact, of his 32 parables, 19 were told in Galilee. Of his 33 great miracles, 25 occurred in Galilee. Jesus' first miracle, the wedding at Cana, was in Galilee. His last, after the resurrection, occurred on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Galilee is where Jesus called his first disciples. It's where he delivered his Sermon on the Mount. So, what about Jerusalem? Jerusalem, as I said, is in the southern province of Judea. Jerusalem's name means City of Peace. There's some sad irony there. During the reign of Herod the Great, Jerusalem underwent a massive makeover, including the expansion of the Second Temple and a construction of a ton of palaces and citadels. And Herod gained really a a lot of Roman support because he remodeled the city of Jerusalem with a Roman design and lifestyle in mind. In fact, he even built a hippodrome for horse and chariot racing. And then he built something called the Antonia Fortress, which is military barracks named after his patron, Mark Antony, the Roman general who served under Julius Caesar. Well, the Antonia Fortress was really to protect the temple. And so it was actually built as the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. And this was Herod's palace fortress. It's where he lived a lot of the time. And what's interesting about this is that this may have actually been the place where Jesus was put on trial before Pontius Pilate, because visiting Roman dignitaries were known to stay there. And because the Antonio Fortress was connected with the court of the Gentiles and the temple, you got there through a stairway and an underground passageway. It makes sense that this may have actually been where Jesus was placed before Pilate and put on trial. At the southeast part of the temple is an area of Jerusalem called the Lower City. And this was the core of ancient Jerusalem. The houses there were made of limestone and super narrow, unpaved streets. And this is where the poor people of Jerusalem lived. To the west of the temple, this is called the upper city, and it stands high above the lower city. This is where the wealthy, aristocratic, and the priestly families lived. And in contrast to the limestone, they lived in white marble mansions and palaces. The palace of the high priest, Caiaphas, was located in the upper city, and this is where the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin probably took place. Just outside this palace is where we believe Peter 
deny knowing Jesus. Today, there's a church there called the Church of St. Peter in Gallicantu, which in translation means the cock's crow. Because remember, you'll deny knowing me three times before the cock's crow. The church is built over the probable site, as I said, of the palace of Caiaphas. Now, in the lower level of the church is a pit where it's believed that Jesus was kept the night before he died. And I got to tell you, visiting this pit was such an extraordinarily moving experience. And I have a picture of this sacred pit on my website, studentofthebible.com. During the time of Jesus, Judea was a prosperous and peaceful province in the Roman Empire. In fact, this period of peace is called the Pax Romana, lasts about 200 years. And during this time, there was really unprecedented economic prosperity in all the provinces. So if you were a Roman citizen, life was pretty good. You were secure that knowing that the government policy was to maintain order, law, stability, and protection. But what's interesting is Jesus prophesied about the future destruction of this beautiful, peaceful city. And he does this in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. And this speech by Jesus occurred on the Mount of Olives, which is to the east of the temple. There's a beautiful church there now called Dominus Flevit, which basically means he wept, and it now sits on that site. This is what the story of Luke says. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you, unquote. As prophesied by Jesus, the people, persuaded by the chief priests and the elders, of course, did turn their back on him and asked Pontius Pilate repeatedly to crucify him. But honestly, anybody hearing Jesus that day would have had a hard time believing that an army was going to surround their beautiful city, bringing the kind of destruction that Jesus prophesied. But just in under 40 years after his death, the Jews of Judea began revolting against Rome, just as prophesied by Jesus. And so Rome, in response, dispatches this army to stop the rebellion and to restore order. But the sad result is this siege and assault on Jerusalem by the Roman troops. And in 70 AD, Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. The result is described on a website called conformingtojesus.com. And they say, quote, the slaughter of thousands at the hand of the Romans of those spared from death, thousands more were enslaved, with some being sent to work in the Egyptian mines, and some taken to Rome and sold there as slaves. Others were scattered to arenas throughout the empire to be 
butchered for the entertainment of the spectators. The Roman leveling of Jerusalem was so thorough that truly not one stone was left upon another, just like Jesus had said. Nothing was left of the temple except for the western wall, which was actually a retaining wall and not part of the actual temple. The Roman destruction of Jerusalem was so thorough that the ruins of the Hippodrome built by Herod the Great were never discovered, unquote. So the rebellion continues then after leaving Jerusalem to other parts of Israel until 73 AD. It's what we believe was the last of the isolated groups of Jewish resistance. And this includes the stronghold at Masada. Now we studied Masada in my last podcast. And this is where a few remaining Jews end up committing suicide rather than being faced by being killed by the Roman legions. Masada was a beautiful fortress constructed by Herod the Great with magnificent views of the Dead Sea. So the Masada ruins to this day becomes a very important pilgrimage for many Jews. And while I took a tram to the top, many groups, especially uh, people who are about to make their bar mitzvah, will hike to the top to reflect on really this final Jewish stronghold. We could spend hours discussing the geography of the New Testament. I just wanted to highlight a few areas that were featured prominently in the New Testament. Now, as part of this podcast preparation, I did some research on, well, how far did Jesus walk during his ministry? Because that was the mode of transportation. Well, of course, the Bible doesn't tell us. And there's wild speculation. I found some websites where people had literally added up the mileage from each one of his stories recounted in the New Testament and ended up being like 21,000 miles. Suffice it to say, there's little agreement. In fact, there were some industrious Jewish tour guides who a few years ago organized something they call the Jesus Trail. And I kind of like this. On their website homepage, it explains the Jesus Trail philosophy, and it says... We hope that travelers of diverse religious and ethnic backgrounds will gain a new understanding of the life of Jesus through the people and the land that shaped his historical context along the Jesus Trail. Today, encounters on the trail still serve as opportunities to extend and receive hospitality with diverse groups of people. Modern travelers can practice living simply and traveling light, gaining wisdom from the spirit of Jesus's words from Mark 6, 8 through 9, quote, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, wear sandals, but not an extra tunic, unquote. Now, I love the part where it says bring no money, not sure exactly how much this tour costs, (laughs) but honestly, what a wonderful way to end this podcast because We should all extend and receive hospitality with diverse groups of people. We need to work harder at dispelling myths about different people from different regions. We can all practice living simply and traveling light. In fact, I'm going to end with this Jewish traveling prayer. May it be your will, O Lord, our God and the God of our ancestors, that you lead us towards peace. Guide our footsteps toward peace. 
Make us reach our desired destination for life, gladness, and peace. May you rescue us from the hand of every foe, ambush along the way, and from all manner of punishments that assemble to come to earth. May you send blessing in our handiwork and grant us grace, kindness, and mercy in your eyes and in the eyes of all who see us. May you hear the sound of our humble requests because you are God who hears prayer requests. Blessed are you, O Lord, who hears prayers. Amen.